911. What is your emergency? Ladies never kiss and tell, but we do kill and tell. Do you guys ever just sit here and stare at your microphone wondering how to start the episode? Because that is currently me. And with that being said, that is exactly how I'm starting the episode. Welcome back, guys. We are here with episode two. My name is Kaylee, your host of Kill and Tell Podcast. All right, guys, it's caffeine dealer time. Today, I am drinking a Starbucks Grande ice shake and espresso with no classic syrup and caramel syrup to substitute. It is literally so freaking good. Like, honestly, liquid crack cocaine. I've been getting Starbucks more times than I probably should recently, and I need to switch it up and find a new caffeine dealer. So if you guys have any recommendations, please let me know for good coffee shops in the greater Boston area. Would be much appreciated. Thank you. Okay, so today's case is an infamous case, actually right in the heart of Boston, This is the case of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, and I will literally fully admit, guys, when I first got into true crime, heists were just not that interesting to me. Oh, yeah, yeah, cool, like, some place got robbed, like, things got stolen, like, heard that story before. But boy, was I wrong. So after hearing about crimes like the one committed by the infamous D.B. Cooper, um, That case was so fascinating, especially when it comes to the complexity and the precision of these crimes and all that goes into them. I had to find another case of that magnitude, and it's been hard. It has been hard, but I think that this one is right up there with it. You guys let me know what you think, but I do think this is a good contender. If you haven't heard that one, go back and listen to it after this episode because it is really intriguing and let me know what your thoughts are. And actually, if you have any other crimes similar to the D.B. Cooper case or the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, send them in to me so I can cover them because I really have been on this like unexplained, unsolved bender. And I know that before I used to always say, if you guys remember, like, I don't like unsolved mysteries because they aren't wrapped up with a pretty little bow and I still have questions. But those are always like the most interesting ones because it's not so cookie cutter. Now it's like, okay, well, like it could have been this and it could have been this and it leaves your mind wondering. Sometimes I do feel like when you have an answer, you're like, oh, like that was it. But I am happy we have justice. So, you know, like a little catch 22 here. Guys, am I the only one that goes down like a Reddit wormhole more than once a week about cases that I've never even heard of? And I'm so invested. Like, I'm reading every single comment, following that comment to a new link, and then that one to a new thread, and then that one to a new video, new documentary, a new podcast, a new comment. It's never ending. And then I look at the time and I'm like, oh shoot, I do have to work tomorrow, so I should probably turn this off. I don't know, just me? Probably not. 
definitely not just me because you wouldn't be listening to my podcast if it was. But anyways, guys, let's get into the case because I could ramble to you all day. So the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. So a little bit about Isabella Stewart Gardner. Obviously, she collected art. No, but um, it actually wasn't until her father passed away when she inherited $1.75 million that she ended up expanding her art collection. And when she got married, she kept collecting art. But in 1896, her husband and her decided to actually open up a museum. This way they could expand their art collection and have a place to store it all. So they began construction and completed the museum in 1901. And it wasn't until 1903 that the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum opened in Boston, Massachusetts. Unfortunately, when Isabella passed away in 1924, she left the museum with $3.4 million and said that nothing was allowed to be changed, nothing could be sold, bought, or altered in the collection. So, in fact, the museum is exactly how she designed it to be and left it. I think it's kind of cool that she actually went out of her way to make sure that nothing would change and, and made sure to preserve its authenticity. The museum consists of a wide variety of art, such as early Renaissance, Italian, Dutch, Asian art, German wood carvings, like, you name it, she probably has it in there. Surprisingly, living in Boston, I actually have yet to go to this museum, but after doing this case, I would like to, especially knowing now what I know, um, it would be really intriguing to go check it out. So that is now on my list, um, and I will make sure I upload photos when I do do that. Unfortunately, after Isabella died, the museum hit some financial issues, and as a result of this, the security of the museum was flawed. The FBI actually got wind of some local Boston criminals that were planning to rob the museum in 1982, and this tip led the museum to install more security. So they put in 60 infrared motion detectors, with closed-circuit TV systems containing four surveillance devices around the museum's perimeter, but no cameras were installed inside the building due to the financial burden. Another cool fact about this case is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist is the single largest property heist in the entire world. Let that just sink in for a moment. It was the early hours of March 18, 1990, when the city of Boston was just winding down. Something devious was underway in the Fenway Park District at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. There was a hatchback car seen parked on Palace Road outside the museum door for about 20 minutes before two men exited the vehicle disguised as Boston police officers and approached the side entrance of the museum. They claimed that they were responding to a disturbance call around 1.24 a.m. The security guard let them in through the employee entrance, even though this was a against normal protocol. I think there's more to the story about the security guard. His name was actually Rick Abbott. And the other security guard that was supposed to be on duty that night had called out. Now, this wasn't unusual because this particular security guard would call out every now and again. But Rick Abbott was known as a stoner, a bit of a druggie, um, and he actually put in his two-week notice a few days before the heist happened. And it was known that he would go around saying, 
how bad the security system at the museum was and that they were in danger there. And he even admitted to opening the back doors a few times, letting people in. So this wasn't an uncommon practice for him to be breaking the rules. And I think that it plays a huge role when we start breaking down the case and thinking, hmm, was this an inside job? So where the imposters entered the museum, it's kind of like a double door situation. There's the door you enter and you enter into the security desk area. And then there's another locked door. So you're going to be trapped in that space unless the security guard opens both doors. Once they were let in, the imposters had the security guard call the other guard on duty down to the watch desk. When both guards were present, the imposters announced that they were under arrest and handcuffed them. They then used duct tape to tie their hands and ankles and also placed duct tape over their eyes. The imposters then locked the two guards down in the basement and handcuffed them to a pipe. Now that the guards were out of the way, now that the guards were out of the way, the thieves had the run of the museum. Now, think about this. The average heist takes 10 minutes tops because obviously they want to be in and out. They don't want to trigger any alarms. They don't want any first responders arriving. They want to get this done as quick as possible. However, these guys are taking their sweet old time. This heist was a total of 81 minutes long. And within that time, the thieves took not one, but two trips back outside to the vehicle to load up the stolen artwork. It wasn't until 2.45 a.m. that the thieves actually left the museum. So now circling back to the security precautions the museum had put in place, the museum had the motion detectors, infrared cameras, like all that stuff. So they were actually able to track where the thieves went throughout the entire heist. And they were able to map out the entire night and which moves the thieves made. So according to the detectors, they started in the Dutch room. And this is where the most valuable pieces were taken. One of the thieves then made five trips into the short gallery where the most art was stolen. And then finally, they concluded in the blue room where only one piece of art was taken. However... This is an assumption because according to the motion detector, there was actually no motion detected on the first floor where the blue room was during the entire heist, but there was a piece missing from that room. The thieves were careful and tried to cover their tracks, so they took the printout of the motion detector alert, and they also took with them the security VHS tape, which is now non-recoverable, but luckily for us, the printout of the motion detector we were able to recover because you could literally just press a button and it would print out another copy. When the next set of guards arrived at the museum to relieve the other guards from duty, they were nowhere to be found. So alarmed, they called the police and that is when the police found the two guards in the basement and it wasn't until 8.15 a.m. So they were in there from, what, 1.45 so they're in there from like 1.30 until 8.15. I'm pretty sure there was somewhere I read that said the guards, not the guards, there was somewhere I read that the thieves went in and checked on the guards before they left, but I didn't find that again and I couldn't find where I read that, so we're just going to pretend like that didn't happen, but just thought it was like worth mentioning. So there was a total of 13 pieces of artwork stolen during the heist. 
These pieces totaled in about $500 million. However, FBI agents say that that's actually an underestimate due to today's costs and inflation rates. So not only that, like monetary value aside, these pieces were so unique and one of a kind that they're honestly saying they're priceless. So I'm going to read off the pieces that were stolen and if I botch the names, you guys know me, I botch every single name. So forgive me now. So I'll go in order of artist. The concert by Johannes Vermeer. So I guess a lot of the pieces were cut out of the frames with probably a razor blade, I'm assuming. But yeah, this one was just taken as is off the wall. They took the entire frame with it. And then a few paintings actually by the same artist were taken. And that artist is Rembrandt van Rijn. And these pieces include a lady in black, portrait of the artist as a young man, and Christ in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Christ in the storm on the Sea of Galilee is actually Rembrandt's only seascape in his entire career that he had ever painted. So this was a very important piece for art history and art culture in general. Like this piece was beyond valuable. Also among the stolen are Landscape with Obelisk by Jovert Flisk. Um, then another piece is Chez Tortoni by Edouard Manet. And another one is Five Works on Paper by Edgar Degas. Each of the Degas pieces that were taken, all of them included horses, which I thought was an interesting fact. There was two more pieces, so the next one is a bronze eagle finale by French, and an ancient Chinese goo, which was the oldest piece that was stolen, and that one dates back to 12 to 1100 BC. So like I was saying, most of the artwork was cut right out of the frame, and actually, if you go and visit the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, you will see these empty frames hanging up on the museum's walls, and that is because, for two reasons. One, because Isabella Stewart Gardner's dying wish was that the museum was left unchanged. So they had to put them back up to leave at least a space for what was. So not only is it a holding place for hopefully the day when these pieces are recovered, but also a reminder to the public of the history of the museum itself. A fascinating aspect to this case, actually, that adds even more questions, in my opinion, is the fact that the thieves left the most expensive piece of artwork at the museum untouched. And this piece of artwork was actually Titan's The Rape of Europa. And this piece was on the third floor, which also, interestingly enough, was never touched by the intruders. There was never any motion detectors going off that said the third floor was ever touched and no pieces were missing. The museum believes that the thieves were actually in pursuit of Dutch artist Rembrandt's works. And if you remember when I listed them off very poorly, he was one of the artists who had the most work stolen. Also, every other Massachusetts museum was robbed of this specific artist's works as well before the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist even happened. Which, okay, like, I get it that they were under financial distress, but knowing that these paintings were being targeted 
in Massachusetts, I just don't understand how they didn't put more of an alert out and like more precaution to make sure that these works were either put away for safekeeping or ramping up security for them. Like, I don't know, like something. But, you know, what do I know? I'm not an art specialist. Since the heist lasted so long, it's actually believed that they must have had some sort of insider information about the museum security systems in order to be able to take as much time as they did without the worry of being caught. This also could explain why there was no motion detected in the blue room during the heist, as if there was someone on the inside helping, that maybe it was actually one of the guards, not like saying the ones that guards had up, but like maybe like somebody else that worked in the museum or one of the guards on staff that could have possibly taken the piece that was stolen from the blue room at another time. Over the course of the investigation, the FBI believes the pieces are being stored in multiple different locations. Over the years and over the course of the investigation, the FBI believes they have a really good idea of where the pieces were moved to and where they went. They actually believe that some of the artwork was moved from Boston to Maine, Connecticut, and actually down to some of the mid-Atlantic states. They also believe that these pieces of artwork are being stored in multiple different locations. One of the first big leads in this case brought us over to Dorchester Avenue, and this is where TRC Auto Electric was. It was said that Carmelo Merlino's crew was run out of this place, and FBI informants, actually the ones that had ends with this crew and Merlino, reported that Merlino was talking about the artwork, and he said that he had access to it. However, Merlino and his crew were busted on an attempted robbery before any more information about the artwork surfaced. Like I mentioned, the FBI believed that the art was actually in different locations, so they believe that two of them went up to Portland, Maine, and the rest actually went over to Manchester, Connecticut. This is actually when another Underworld figure comes into the picture who was associated with Merlino, and this guy's name is Bobby Garanti. And Bobby's wife actually told the police that she saw her husband give over pieces of the artwork to Robert Gentile. The FBI conducted a search on Gentile's home where they found a list of each stolen piece of artwork next to it, their value. Not only that, but they found a secret compartment underneath the shed of his property. And when they went to open said shed, said shed, she shed? No, when they went to open the shed, it was completely empty. So unfortunately, it was just another one of their unanswered questions. However, they still do think that Gentile used this compartment to help move the art, and they think that he helped move the art to Philadelphia, where the local mob there was supposed to be putting it up for sale in the year of 2000 on the black market. In the year of 2013, FBI released the identity of the two thieves, George Riesfelder and Lenny DiMuzio. Both of these men were a part of Camelo Marino's crew. However, within a year of the heist, each of the men died. Coincidence? I think not. It was reported that Riesfelder died of a drug overdose and that DiMuzio was murdered. And I don't know, if you ask me, it sounds pretty suspicious. Like, really? They both died the same year? <laughs> and one was murdered. 
So, like, why are we not looking into that further? I don't know. Anyways, um, Merlino died in 2005 from diabetes, and apparently the answers died with him. Another theory actually involves somebody who we hadn't talked about, which was Bobby Donati, and informants say that Donati buried the works underneath the ground and was waiting for the investigations to simmer down before beginning to sell the art. However, he also died in a gang war the same year. So we're really batting a thousand here, guys. Bobby Donati was actually really close friends with Miles Connor, who was a known art thief. And it is said that Miles and Donati worked together on some heists. Donati wanted to use the art as leverage from the Isabella Stewart Museum heist. Well, this is in theory. Wanted to use this art as leverage in order to get Vinny Ferrara out of jail because he needed him on the streets for the upcoming gang war, or sorry, the ongoing gang war that was going on in Boston. However, Donati was found decapitated and shot in the trunk of his car in September 1991. There are so many criminals claiming to be a part of this heist or claiming to know who had done it, Each Boston criminal that we have talked about that may be associated with this, they are all kind of intertwined with each other and like either are good friends with each other or worked with each other. So like you can't really tell like where it starts and where it ends because we don't really know. But yeah, welcome to the spider web. But in all reality, like we will literally never know until the artwork is recovered and that will give us a better understanding of actually what happened and who was involved. There are so many theories circulating this case, and actually there is a series on Netflix called This is a Robbery, and it's actually about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. So I would check that out because it was a really good watch. There are so many avenues I could have included in this podcast, but honestly, they're always just going to be theories until we know and I could literally go down a wormhole, so I'm just not even going to bother. If you guys want to look into it and you guys have a theory that you're like, no, Keely, this is it, let me know and I'll look into it. I feel like until we have more answers, it's just going to be a lot of like, he did it, she did it, he said, she said, this person's involved, that person was involved, I think it was here, I think this work is here, I thought I saw it there. And it makes it a good case to talk about because it brings a lot of discussion into it. So I want to hear your theories and who you think did it and why, because I'm still trying to figure it out. I think I'm leaning towards the Bobby Donati route. It's the one that I heard the most about and it just kind of seems plausible. I personally believe it was probably an inside job. I think that there was too many discrepancies with the security systems. I also think that it had to be somebody in the underworld I always say, like, like whenever I say underworld, like, I think I'm going to, like, talk about, like, like, I don't know, like, demons or something. <laughs> it's probably someone in the Boston Underworld crew, like, somebody maybe involved in gangs, mafia, or mobs. Um, somewhere of that nature is, like, kind of where my head's going to. I'd be interested to hear what you guys think, like I said. Uh... I also think it's pretty interesting that not a single piece has surfaced and all 13 are still missing so it makes me wonder 
I know that the FBI said they're probably being stored in different places, but I do wonder if they're all together because, I mean, you would have thought that at least one maybe was found. But one thing I know about Boston is we are stubborn and persistent, so we will figure it out one way or another, um, no matter how long it takes. The return of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum artwork remains a top priority. The museum, the FBI, and the U.S. Attorney's Office are still seeking viable leads that could result in the safe return of the art. The museum is offering a $10 million reward for information leading directly to the safe return of the stolen artwork. A share of the reward would be given in exchange for information leading to the restitution of any portion of the works, and a separate reward of $100,000 is being offered for the return of the Napoleonic Eagle Finial. Anyone with information about the stolen artworks should contact Director of Security Anthony Amore at 617-278-5114 or email him at reward at gardnermuseum.org. Confidentiality is assured. I strongly encourage you guys to go check out the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum like I will um, because it looks like there's a lot to offer and there's a lot to learn actually about this case there. Even right on their website if you go on gardnermuseum.org, you can find a lot about this case. So guys, that is a Boston Unsolved for you. I hope I was able to do this case some justice, and I hope I left you with some answers and not only questions. But, you know, sometimes that's just the way it goes. I will catch you guys on Tuesday next week. So until then, keep it spooky.